Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I am your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Tom Gaynor. I can't imagine too many of you don't know who Tom Gaynor is, but if you do not, he is the chief executive officer of Markel Corporation. Tom is well known to many. He has done many an interview, which made this a little bit tough for me because I wanted to uh, not waste his time or the listener's time and give him a an interview that I would want to hear that I haven't heard before, and I hope I have done that. I have gotten to know Tom over the past few years, and I feel very fortunate to been able to do so. And I was super happy that uh, he agreed to come on the pod, and I hope that I have done right by him and by you, the listener, in this interview. If you do like what Tom has to say or what I have to say or any combination of the two, or what a couple episodes Bob Rabati had to say, please come to the Markel annual meeting. We will be hosting events Wednesday, May 17th. I believe the address is 435 West Hampton Way in Richmond, Virginia. You've got heavy hitter lineup. We've got Bob Rabati, Lauren Templeton, Eric Ward, Jonathan Boyer, Hopefully, I will do a good job hosting that panel. I will do a good job hosting that panel. And then the other panel, we've got Samantha McLemore, Larry Potowski, Jake Lubell, the one and only Andrew Walker, and that will be moderated by Jeffrey Bronchick, and that will be followed up by Markell's annual meeting. They are getting a unique event together, and uh, I think it's worth attending. If you're Certainly, if you're in the area, stop by. Last week's read got some positive feedback, so I'm just going to go back and do what I did last week and talk a little bit about Stratosphere.io, the sponsor for this podcast. For those that don't know, that's S-T-R-A-T-O-S-P-H-E-R-E dot I-O. Today, I was playing around with some Airbnb financials, trying to figure out some housing-related stuff in an indirect way, and was clicking through saw segments and KPIs for Airbnb. It gives me the nights and experiences booked. Fun tidbit, in December of 2015, 72.4 million nights and experiences were booked. In 2022, 394 million were booked. That seems like a lot. Gross booking value has gone from 8.1 to 63.2 billion, and the average daily rate has increased from 111.30 cents to $160.60. And if those are the kind of, oh, and the take rate for Airbnb has increased from 11.3% to 13.3%. If those are the types of statistics that you like to look for, try stratosphere.io. Feel free to use the promo code BREW if you sign up for the paid offering. Regardless, you can trial it out for free. I'm going to stop talking and get to the episode as always, none of this is financial advice. All of this is for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please do your own due diligence and consult your financial advisor before making investment decisions. All right, on to the episode. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to be joined by uh, Tom Gaynor today. Tom, how you doing? I'm well. Nice to see you, Bill. Nice to see you. I appreciate you coming on. I'm going to give a plug for uh, the weekend that you have coming up. This is exciting. I was talking to Bob today, uh, Bob Rabati, and... Um, I'm excited about the panel that I'm moderating, and I think it's going to be great. So I've I've committed to starting to promote it. So here's the beginning of the promotion. Perfect. And when you said this weekend, uh, yeah, the I was week- thinking about 
the actual literal this weekend when UVA is playing Duke in basketball. And of course, that's front of my mind. So that's immediately what, what came up. Uh, then I quickly figured from the context, you were talking about the Markel annual meeting and the things we got going on there. So thank you for that as well. And check back with me next week to see how the uh, Duke Virginia game worked out. I will do. I will do. Yes. This weekend, I really meant uh, what the weekend of May 17th, I believe it is. So that is correct. Uh, yes. I could be a little more precise when I talk sometimes. It's a flaw <laughs> I have. Fortunately, like everything else in life, you, you deal with whatever bits of information you have and you try to triangulate into what you're actually talking about. So I, I don't think it was too long for us to get there. Yeah. How, uh, what, you know, what, what is your goal for the Markel annual meeting and, uh, you know, what we're all doing beforehand. I, I think it's turning into quite an event. It is. And, and that really is the goal. Uh, so really modeled on what has happened at Berkshire over the years where, you know, I've been gone for 32 years now, the number of people that I have met and just serendipitous encounters and the conversations that got started that turned into beers, that turned into meals, that turned into long-term relationships. That's been fantastic. And We'll keep doing that just as absolutely as long as possible. But I'd also like to set up and establish that tradition in Richmond, Virginia, at the Markell Annual Meeting as well, where everybody who comes, in addition to the formal bits of the meeting itself, there's the opportunity for people to get questions asked, have conversations, but most importantly, to meet the other people that will be there um, and, and start to build those relationships, which I think are priceless. I'm going to give a big shout out for Rich or to Richmond. Uh, you know, when I first went to Omaha, I didn't know what Omaha was. And then I found the downtown there and I was like, I like this city. And I feel the same way about Richmond, although I, I would be lying if I didn't say I had more affinity for Richmond than Omaha. It is a very cool town. Well, thank you. It's, it's fun. And I, I joke with people when I'm traveling and trying to explain Richmond uh, that Richmond is a place that has 75% of the advantages of a big city, but only 25% of the hassles. So it's a wonderful place to live. Uh, and again, the big city stuff, whether it's a nice restaurant or show or cultural event or athletic event or what have you, all of those are great. And uh, in fact, we were just talking earlier about music and some of the live music shows that come through here and who I like to say. And oftentimes I can be applauding at the last song and standing up at the encore. And after I finish my applause, I am home with my head on my pillow in 20 minutes. So that's that's how that I define nice. both a fun concert to go to and an easy, seamless experience to get there and get back. Yeah, that's uh, that is nice. I uh, I have found myself in my old age. I leave concerts before uh, the encore, and that is embarrassing wow. to admit. But I I like to avoid the traffic, at least in Chicago. <laughs> so oh well. You know those ads about we can't help you from turning into your parents? That yes. sounds an awfully lot, lot like what your parents might have said at some point in time. Yes, this is factual, although they're probably cooler than me. So, um, <laughs> look, I think uh, it's it's unlikely that any of my listeners don't know who you are. But if they do not know, uh, you want to give a little bit of background of, of who you are and uh, the company that you're now CEO of? Sure, oh, the Tom sole CEO. I shouldn't say now CEO, sole CEO. Well, Thank you. Uh, yes, Tom Gaynor with, with Markel. I've actually been here since 1990. I, I actually started following the company as an investment analyst in 1986 at the time of the IPO. When I, when I joined in 1990, uh, I started managing equity investments for Markel. It was a pretty small specialty insurer that made an underwriting profit and was willing to invest the money long term. And that really continues to be the case today. 
but at that time when I joined in 1990, I suspect the market cap of the company was, call it roughly $40 million. Today it's $18 billion and change. At that time, we might have had three or 400 people. Now we have 20 some thousand, and it really has been following the formula of building out um, a specialty insurance company, which makes an underwriting profit, and then taking those pennies of underwriting profit and investing them long-term, both in publicly traded common stocks, um, and then starting in 2005 in wholly owned businesses, which we call that group Markel Ventures, and Markel Ventures these days, again, starting from an idea in 2005. Now, uh, last year, they probably made about $5 billion in revenues and $500 million roughly in EBITDA. So the, the dream is coming true. And what started out just as an idea and vision is a real, actual, live company these days. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been really neat to, to see you grow that. I, You know, I, I thought... Um... It was interesting reading the 2021 letter when you talked about blue capital and orange capital. Um, do you mind uh, sort of talking a little bit about that? And and my follow up question, just to give you a little bit of a tip uh, on it, is going to be, you know, how did you think about allocating to ventures when you when it takes away from the blue capital uh, until you know realization events or dividends coming back to the to the parent right. company? Well, as we started out and uh, joking about this upcoming weekend in the UVA Duke game, I must admit that the inspiration for orange and blue is that those are the colors for UVA. I, I thought about red and blue, uh, but that seemed too politically divisive and would take away from the message of what I was trying to calculate to to, uh, to communicate. Thought about type A, type B, type one, type two, but settled in on, on orange. It's probably and blue. not type one, type two. You know, associating it with diabetes probably isn't a great idea. <laughs> You are correct about that. And in fact, somebody mentioned that exact idea. So that's why we went with orange and blue. And stay tuned. Our, our annual report will be out, uh, I think, the 17th of this month is scheduled to be released. or very close to that. And the themes of orange and blue might indeed be revisited. All so right. I'll just tease it in that way. Um, well, to answer your question, I started out life professionally as an accountant. And one of the things that was really just... I was struggling with and trying to figure out is sometimes you use the same word to mean more than one thing. And the word capital is one of those things that use that word capital, but capital means more than one thing. And that was what the whole orange and blue essay was about, orange capital and blue capital. One being we use the word capital to describe what regulators and rating agencies insist that we have on hand in order to be financially viable and rated at a certain level and licensed and all that sort of thing. Now, while that takes capital in the sense that we have to have, you know, we have to put capital in there, it, it's still money and it, it's still ours. We, we just need to post it. We need to sort of circle it. We need to uh, report it to the regulators, but it's not as if it's left the building. It is still inside the building and earning returns and every penny of that capital, uh, which I think we called the blue capital in last year, that still earns a return for for Markel, so it's 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 a high class problem to have to have too much of it, which might be where you're going, and uh, certainly something that a, a lot of people talk about it. Orange capital, uh, in my technical accounting terms, I, I just call that money. So that money takes the form of either cash, fixed income securities, the publicly traded portfolio that we have, um, and and some sense of what the value would be of the companies that are not publicly traded, but they're, they're worth something. 
Um, now, the regulators view those types of distinctions with some distinctions, and they give us orange capital credit of different levels, depending on what category something is in. But the good news is, again, all of that blue capital, whether it's, I think I called it navy blue or light blue or, or uh, invisible blue, uh, all of that, again, those are still earning assets, which create value for the entire Markel Corporation. So the thing is, you just have to operate within the constraints and within the, the yellow lines of, of what the regulators and rating agencies want to see in place for your business. But the good news is whether it's orange capital, blue capital, clear capital, light blue, navy blue, burnt orange, whatever, those are all income-producing, value-creating assets for the entirety of the Markel Corporation. So the the only thing I think about when we're making an allocation is that temporarily, that as, as long as we have capital well in excess of our orange capital requirement levels, we have the choice of either um, funding some growth within our insurance operations, funding some growth within our Markel Ventures companies, uh, purchasing some publicly traded securities, fixed income or, or equity, or buying uh, another Markel Ventures kinds of company. And you, and you just have to play out the scenarios to, se to see, all right, well, how long is it going to be before you kind of have uh, enough excess that you're comfortable in, in making those kind of decisions? Yeah, that makes sense. Because when I was reading it, I was wondering what, if any, was the foregone opportunity of compounding as you allocated to ventures, more, probably more in the beginning, right? Because it's taking away from capital that you're getting credit for, uh, yeah. you know, like, and, and how did you think about that? Cause that's, that's an interesting problem or not problem, but issue to, to come in, in contact with. Right. As a practical matter, I don't think there is any foregone opportunity, uh, that's created by the fact that we have allocated some money into Markel Ventures. The only reason we're allocating money into a Markel Ventures company is because we are, we, that's where we think at that particular point in time, that's the highest and best use for capital. So it's not like we're giving up something in order to do it. Where you might argue that that could possibly be the case is, say, theoretically, there were some Markel Ventures-like opportunity that came across our desk or came into our awareness that we just simply didn't have enough excess blue capital to, to do that deal. What we would then do is we would say, wow, this is so compelling. Should we go out and you know, raise some capital so that so that we can do that. As a practical matter, that has not happened. Nothing has been that large or that compelling that uh, we thought it was wise to to do so. But one theoretically should sort of allow for that possibility should those circumstances present themselves somewhere along the line. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, and, and as an example, again, I mean, you'll hear us talk about Berkshire a lot. Uh, when Berkshire bought Burlington, Northern Santa Fe, there was actually some issuance of Berkshire stock to help pay for that transaction. It was controversial at the time, and there were certainly plenty of naysayers uh, about whether that was a, a good or a bad deal. But I think the fullness of time has shown that was a pretty good deal and a, and a pretty good use of uh, some external capital coming into the picture in order to fund that deal. Now, the beauty of that uh, is, is again, what we would hope for is if you do these sorts of things well, if we run the insurance business reasonably well, if we make reasonably good investment decisions in our publicly traded portfolio, and we make reasonably good uh, decisions in our Markel Ventures, we keep creating more capital. 
So the size and scale of opportunities that we can realistically consider and possibly acquire keeps growing. And in, in point of fact, you've seen that the first deal we bought in 2005 of AMF Bakery Equipment, that was a, a business that was making about $5 million in, in, a, in EBITDA, and we paid roughly $14 million for 80% of that business at that time. So that was a good deal, uh, but it, it, it subsequently worked out quite well. But the, the most recent deals we did, which we didn't do any in 2022, because we couldn't find anything that met our return hurdles, but when we were talking about uh, Metromon and Buckner at the tail end of 21, those those deals literally, using the word precisely, because I'm married to an engineer who, she, she gets concerned that I uh, improperly use these, these words. It is an order of magnitude bigger than, than what we did in, in 2005. So the, the size and scale has moved proportionally along with the rest of the organization. Uh, you know, something that we had, we had talked about, this is a couple of years ago now, um, but you had, had, we were, we were sitting in a room and you were discussing the, the process of laying the groundwork for, um, almost like lead, gen I, I, I'm going to call it lead generation. I guess it's deal flow, right. Uh, for ventures and how long, uh, the process can take. And, and that would be, I think, interesting for people to hear how long you, you work on, you know, people see, okay, well, they closed two deals last year, but they don't see the legwork that went into it. So do you mind kind of talking a little bit about what goes into generating the deal flow that leads to, you know, probably that a deal, say you meet somebody today, maybe it's 2028 before it closes, right? Oh, that's absolutely true. And as examples at the long end of the, the curve there, CapTech, which uh, you know we've owned five or six years now, or something like that, and VSC, which is the fire protection business, we talked to the principals of those companies five to seven years before the deal actually closed. So the conversations, the just what about this, and have you thought about that, and thinking about this, again, those conversations can go for years before someone says, "Okay, I'm ready to." Uh, to, to consummate this and let's, let's, let's go ahead and move on. Uh, that's one extreme. The other extreme is that somebody comes to you and pretty quickly they, they want to get things done. They have reasons that they, they'd like to, to get on with their lives and move on. And sometimes those conversations can, can take place, I don't know, in, in a matter of days. And then after a handshake takes place, you probably have about two months before you can get everything documented and papered and closed but that I would be surprised if, if you bought a if you bought a house to live in right now once you sign the contract it's it's 45 or 60 days before you close close the deal and, and I would I would suggest that when we're buying Markel Ventures companies there's a little more to that than buying a house but yeah we get it closed in almost about the, the same amount of time. How um how over your career have you uh, learned to build teams and integrate you know talent? I mean, it's one thing to go out and and buy a stock in a business. It's another thing to bring in a wholly owned subsidiary and truly learn abdication or not abdication, but you know, like uh, I t I talked to the to the person that runs Virginia Sprinkler, and he said he was like working or after I sold to Markel. It was as they said it would be, and I don't get meddled with. Uh, you know, occasionally I'm told, you know, to send some money back to corporate or not, but that like 
all the decisions are still mine. Uh, you know, it's one thing to model Buffett. It's another thing to live that type of, uh, you know, management philosophy. Uh, how, how has it happened for you? Well, to some degree, it's the, it's the old Montessori method, Montessori schools. You learn by doing. And within the context of Markel Ventures, again, I talked about in 2005, we had had the mindset or thought by being observers of the Berkshire model that this was a, a good path and a good way to do things. But it, but it wasn't until 2005. I mean, I'd been here since 1990. That's a long gestation period before the stars aligned where a specific circumstance, some specific people, some specific businesses uh, came about such that we, we could go ahead and do that. And by doing that, um, again, it was a piece that had it not worked well, we'll, we'll live to fight another day. Uh, we, we could absorb making an epic mistake. And, and we've made some mistakes along the way, but that's, that's, that's how you learn. The old joke, you know, good judgment comes from experience, which comes from bad judgment. So the truthful answer to your question and the learn by doing is you just start doing it. And you start doing it with the mindset that, look, we, we want to have people who are interested in staying with these businesses, management teams that have been successful. We want them to stay and we want them to keep going. And, and uh, an interesting statement I heard recently, and this is related to Constellation Software up in Toronto, if you're familiar with them, mm -hmm. it's been an epically successful uh, company. My wife, Susan Gaynor, actually happens to be on, on the board up there. Um, they would use the phrase that accountability is more important than scale. So they mm -hmm. have many, 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 many business units. When you have people at the business unit who are really the CEO of that business, they have accountability that exists for their result, just like the VSC uh, gentleman that is the CEO of that business. He, he runs that. Now, he's forgotten more about the fire sprinkler business than I will ever know. And he also knows that he's accountable for the results. And he also knows that we're long-term people and we understand why you might wish to incur an expense today that has payoffs years years down the, down the road. You know, the, the net present value of that kind of decision can be extremely positive and we're willing uh, to think very, very long-term. So it's created something of a flywheel where these kinds of people are just attracted to Markel because they talk to their friends. So the, when, when I'm talking to somebody, it, in many cases, they have been referred to me by people, people who are already running Mark Alvinger's businesses, and they will, they will be like what you described, uh, and they'll say, look, th those guys actually did what they said they would do, and they, uh, they, they allow for an autonomous operation. I'm, I'm having fun. It's going well, and, and it's working. And one final example of that would be that the, the gentleman who was the CEO of AMF when we bought it in 2005, it is now 18 years later. He still runs that business. And that means that means that we did what we said we would do, and he did what he said he would do. That's that's win-win in play. Were, were that not true, he would not still be there. So yeah. the system is designed to mutually reinforce itself over and over and over and over again. And there's, there's really just no way to, to uh, jumpstart that or snap it into being and, and create instant pudding. You, you got you to gotta cook the pudding for a while and get it hot and then let it cool before you can start eating it. And we, we've done that for long enough that we have credibility 
in in the marketplace such that we, we get exposed to situations and circumstances that uh, people want what we have. And there, there's not a ton of organizations who are set up in the way that we are with permanent capital as opposed to venture by venture capital and such that that, that makes us a very attractive home for a lot of people. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's it seems as though the feedback that that comes back is is consistent with uh, what I what I would hope to hear, right? Uh, and um, it's you I, and I, I would both you and I would both hope to hear that. I mean, if yeah. if that's not happening, then then there's something off off the rails. Yeah, it's been uh, interesting to watch you all struggle a little bit with the ILS uh, acquisitions. And I'm curious, you know, as you go back and, and I'm, I'm fortunate as anyone that knows Saurabh is, uh, to know him. So I know how much, how much time you have spent thinking about the decision to enter the market. Um, now that you've reflected on it and you've been through, you know, the pain, would you go back and do the same thing again? Uh, and, and has it been like a series of sort of cards that came out that weren't great or was there something you all could have done a little better on the diligence side or whatever? Um, the answer is yes to all of those. Now let's, let's start at the 80,000 foot level and we can go down as far as you want. Um, theoretically, if, if we had the way back machine and could go back and think about entering the ILS markets, uh, would we do that again? Yes. And the learning curve in doing so has been painful uh, at, at spots, and some of those were reasons that were within our control. And perhaps knowing what we know now, we, we would have avoided those mistakes. But I think in the fullness of time, um, and we're already at the point where the, the J curve is bending up rather than continuing to, to dip down, it will be very important for Markel to have the capabilities that we have on account of the ILS structures being inside Markel and in place and us having long experience with it and what can go right and what can go wrong. Because to some degree, the way I would explain ILS is that if, if you think about a uh, insurance client who's buying insurance, and that's that's where the risk is, and you think about the capital that, that stands behind that risk, that's traditionally the insurance company. So there's this, there's this train line that runs from the risk itself back to the insurance company um, and brokers and intermediaries and actuaries and uh, agents all, all along the way. But that that's the train line. Well, what ILS is, is a spur off that line. And so rather than the ultimate end being our balance sheet as an insurance company, where we have cost of capital thresholds at a, at a certain level, which would be in the double digits, the capital providers in the ILS ecosystem are not companies that want to make double-digit returns on their equity capital. It's more in the realm of pension funds, endowment funds, people looking for alternative investments where the cost of capital number might be a little bit lower. And in exchange for having lower expected returns, those returns are not correlated with other returns in their portfolio. So at the end of the day, what the ILS structure does for us, it allows us to have a pool and access to a pool of capital that has a lower cost of capital requirement. So that means when you when you roll on down the tracks, it is a lower price to the ultimate customer because the you know, the returns to, to capital were lower. Well, we still would um, 
have the fee income and profit participations and things that one could get all the way along. But in the ILS model, we didn't expose our balance sheet to those risks, whereas in the insurance company model, we did. So where it is appropriate for risk to um, be in that market and and for clients to, to want to um, invest in insurance-linked securities for the returns they do in the context of their total portfolios, we get to be somewhat indifferent as to how to structure it because we can go either way and it'll work out for the, the Markel Corporation and it helps us to serve the client and meet their needs and do what they want, however they want it done, um, no matter what. And so as opposed to saying we can't do that or see it go away to a competitor somewhere, we'll keep that in-house. And I think that's a that's a good thing for Markel. And if we didn't know how to do it, we need to learn how to do it. And if it's painful and expensive to learn how to do it, well, um, tuition at uh, a good school oftentimes is painful and expensive, but oftentimes it's, it's worth it. And I like to think we're now at the, the phase where we, we've paid those tuition bills and, and uh, juniors out there working and has a job and is gainfully employed. I like it. And uh, d- those those uh, funds, they end up, you get GP economics on some of them. Yeah. Like if, if you deliver what you promise. Yeah. So it's uh it's a good, good structure when, de- when, when delivered well. Right. Uh, so if some it, catastrophes it, it, exactly. could uh, avoid the uh, U.S. for a while may, or wherever you're insuring, uh, that, that would be helpful. Right. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's been the case that, you know, since we bought it and since we, um, you know, went down those painful learning curves and some things. We also did that as newbies in an environment where the natural catastrophes exceeded what we had expected and, and, and modeled in. So we, we doubled up on the, on the pain portion. Um, one would hope, and it would be, I think, reasonable to expect, that if you look at the next five, seven, 10 year chunk of time, we're, we're better at it than we used to be because we've, we've learned how to do things. And we may be in a different sort of just overall uh, natural catastrophe load environment than, than what we were in the last five or seven years. But even if even if the um, natural catastrophe loads are, are higher on a on a regular basis, given all the conversations one people would have about climate change and the, the implications of that, that that's not a surprise to people. So as as long as you know what the risks are and and price appropriately, you, you can still earn good returns even if the underlying loss costs are higher. Than what they used to be. Well, uh, I I hope that uh, to the extent that you're insuring in Florida, I hope you don't pull out. And if you have pulled out, you know, consider coming back because we got a real problem down here. Uh, it's not great. Yeah, no, that that's absolutely correct. And uh, at the end of the day, the pricing mechanism that exists, setting aside insurance, uh, tends to figure out some ways to solve those problems. So I, yeah. I have not been to the I have not been to the grocery store this week. But uh, in fact, we're we're hosting some people for the, for the Duke game, and they wanted to know whether we wanted to go out for dinner or what we want to do. And I said, no, we'll we'll cook something for you, and and we're going to cook you something really nice and expensive, i.e., scrambled eggs. Yeah, that's so. right. Yeah, good luck with your eleven eleven dollar carton of eggs. I'm, I'm I'm saving up for it, but I've also read without having gone to the grocery store that wholesale egg prices are actually peaking and going down a little bit. So that that scrambled egg. Uh, dish that we're just really celebrating and breaking out the champagne with that, that might not be as fancy by uh, by this weekend as it is today. 
Yeah, it's uh, eggs are an interesting market. I, I had some exposure to them uh, on the corporate banking side. And I, I remember people breaking eggs because there were too many. And then I see the prices now and I think, boy, this these cycle, uh, you know, you can grow chickens quick and they can lay a lot of eggs. It's, uh, it's something that can, you know, you can catch up. Quick. Uh, I mean, it's I, wild. I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely fascinating. To, to observe that market and what's going on and the exogenous factors of the avian flu and what's going on. But I think it's also a great uh, bit of restorative faith in the market systems that, look, in response to $6 a dozen eggs, which two years ago were 89 cents to make up uh, made up but directionally correct numbers, the, the market will produce a bunch more eggs at $6 a dozen then it did at 89 cents. We'll, we'll figure it out. We will figure it out. I have no idea in my mind at all what the specific solutions are, but I know that a lot of people with a lot of brain cells, a lot of experience and a lot of expertise are working very, very hard to figure that out. And I would bet a lot of money that they will. This, this in a weird way, leads me to my, my next question. Uh, once upon a time, uh, at one of the Omaha lunches, you said that you used to search among the 52-week low list. And I'm curious to hear your evolution as an investor. I, I know you've told it a lot, but I, I just like to hear hear it again. Sure. Well, let me clarify so that that new high, new low list statement. What I said was, in my earlier life, I used to read the new low list first. Okay. Because you're right. hunting my for, apologies hunting for bargains. And, and look at that stuff. And then I would read the new high list. And, and part of my thinking there was, um, if it was something I already owned and it was making a new high, I probably knew that without even looking at the list. Because I'd be aware of it just from the smug feeling of self-satisfaction one has from owning a stock that's hitting a new high. Um, but Because it's uh, doing the, it because you bought it. You're, you're very uh, smart well, and obviously the market agrees. <laughs> <laughs> Not going to take that much credit, but yeah, we, we all know how it really works. So at any rate, uh, along the way, and, and this is, was a, a process over time, it came to be that, you know, something that is making a new high, maybe, maybe something good is going on there in an underlying fashion. And if I didn't own the stock such that I wasn't kind of focused on the new high list, well, that's a pretty good place to look. For, for companies that are doing well. And, and then you can make a decision, look, is this just a trading move? Is this cyclical? Or, wow, is, is this a company that really has proven its its expertise and, and should be you know celebrated and, and bought more up? Now, uh, uh, I will use my own example of Markel. The first shares of Markel that I bought, I bought for eight bucks back in 1986 at the time of the IPO. And I have bought stock in Markel as recently as this week, which was publicly disclosed. The filings are out there at 1300 and some. Well, you could argue you're paying a lot more for the same stock than what you did when it was eight bucks. By the way, I rather suspect it won't be eight bucks again. And the value that has been created all the way along, when I think of what I got for the $8 I paid in 1986 versus what I'm getting today when I'm paying 1300 and change, Th those are those are not apples to apples comparisons, and it might very well be that given the the values that's, that are there and the and the uh, opportunities that are there and the proof point that my goodness over thirty six years these these people have actually built the value of things such that it used to sell for eight dollars and now it sells for thirteen fourteen hundred bucks 
uh, they they might they, they just might have some clue about knowing what they're doing. So uh, when you when you see that as demonstrated and and the just the the pond is stocked on the new high list with people who at least are showing some signs of progress, I just think it's a good thing to look at. And so I I, I look at the new high list now first. Rather than right. new low list first, but but I, but I look at both. Yeah, noted, noted. I I when you well, first of all, I didn't hear it correctly, but second of all, or I don't remember it correctly. But what I heard when you said that is, um, and it's probably a perception issue, but that you've you've morphed more to a uh, focusing on quality, and you know the the high list can give you those. Uh, it, it's not a I need to go buy it now thing, but it's to put it on the watch list. Um, because they're companies that are likely to your point, uh, may have figured some things out. So that's what I kind of took away from it. I don't know if I took the right things, but. And I think that's directionally correct. So looking at the new high list again, uh, probably does point you a little bit because, because for instance, if I saw something on the new high list that I looked at and then I concluded that's cyclical or that's just a trading move, that is probably not something that I would be as interested in as something that I'm, I'm getting that signal that says, hey, these people know what they're doing and and they're likely to continue to know what they're doing for a multi-year period. That, that's a very different idea than than a trading idea. Yeah. Uh, we are full, full taxpayers. So that idea of being able to buy something and hold it for a long period of time and have tax deferred compounding as opposed to paying taxes every year of what you trade and sell and have a realized gain on the differential in the total return to Markel over time of being able to buy something and hold on to it versus having to, to sell it and realize that gain and pay taxes every year, it, that's a huge difference. So both constitutionally and by, by behavior and the structure of the money that exists at Markel and what we're trying to do with it, uh, b- building the long-term value by being able to buy things and hold them for a long duration. Uh, that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, how, how you know, you mentioned the, the capital within Markel. How would, uh, I guess the question would be, would your strategy be different if you were in a fund structure as opposed to at Markel? Uh, you know, just like strictly from an investment philosophy, uh, are there things about being at an insurance company that make you more diversified than you otherwise would be? Or uh, do you get to run your portfolio as you feel is like philosophically pure as you want it to be? Yeah, I am extremely grateful for the opportunity to to manage the investments within the context of Markel. And I would add, it's not just the insurance company. It's also increasingly Markel Ventures, because, again, the cash flow coming out of Markel Ventures is is the same color green as the cash flow coming out of uh, the insurance business, and they are both substantial amounts these days. So the flow of cash and the capital that gets to subsequently be allocated uh, comes from both those, as well as the recurring dividend and interest income on the portfolio that exists. So, so the good news is, compared to an open-end fund, or, or even a partnership that has 90-day redemptions or whatever, the, the capital here is essentially permanent, and however long a sense of the world you you can you can use the word permanent these days uh, it does not have a daily liquidity provision to it doesn't have a quarterly liquidity provision to it as long as we continue to operate profitably 
there's never, there's never a call on the equity capital company, the money. We just, we just have to have that to be viable counterparties to the, to the contracts we enter into. So the ability to invest with a long-term time horizon and, and set aside daily liquidity concerns, that's an advantage. And the steadiness and regularity of the cash flows is an advantage. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm playing a different game than, than what others, in the, than most people in the, in the investment world do. And it, it suits my temperament. I'm not good at being quick or fast or outrunning somebody or out, out hundred yard dashing somebody. My skill is in thinking about things in longer term time frames and having the endurance and the, and the discipline and just iron will to just keep at it day after day after day after day. Um, and the structure allows for that, encourages it. It has been interesting to, uh, I, I know that your career has crossed paths with uh, Mr. Buffett often, or, or if not often, early uh, yet at the post. And um, it, it's been interesting to see that uh, it appears as though the intertwining of Berkshire and Markel is getting deeper. Uh, I have in my notes, Berkshire owns Markel, Markel owns Berkshire, Chris Davis is on the Berkshire board, and Tom is the chairman of Davis Funds. Uh, I think it's interesting what's going on there. I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts, if you have it. I think those are all sure. I mean, they're not they're not totally by accident. And again, getting back to your earlier question of what we're trying to do at the Markel annual meeting this year, the the way all of those came about was that in 1991, right after you know in April of the 91, after first joining Markel, I said to Steve Markel. I said, the people who are most likely able to understand what we're trying to do are people who already own Berkshire. So rather than try to get those people to come to Richmond, let's go to Omaha and just start meeting people. And that very first year, as it turns out, um, I, I was there, I was, I was by myself. I was sitting in the Orpheum Theater where the uh, Berkshire meeting was, was taking place. I heard these two guys behind me talking to one another. And I, I did not know them, um, but for some reason, divine inspiration or whatever, some uh, some thought came into my brain, and I turned around and I said, "Excuse me, are, are you Chris and Shelby Davis by any chance?" Hmm. And they said, "Yes, we are." So frankly, we started talking at that point because we were just serendipitously sitting next to one another in the uh, Orpheum Theater at the Berkshire meeting. And that's been a 30 plus year friendship and relationship that started that way and just sort of cascaded and compounded over time. Uh, similarly, back in 1991, uh, the total attendance at the Berkshire meeting was roughly 700 people. So it's not like today. And you, you could just go up to Buffett and introduce yourself and probably have a, a brief conversation. And I did. And, and we talked about a few things. I ended up uh, writing him a, a, a letter, which I still have in my desk these days because it's a little bit of a funny exchange. Um, so uh, those kinds of things started there and they were nurtured and they've worked out for everybody involved so far. So they continue. Yeah. It's uh, the one thing that I've, I've heard uh, you speak of that I, it resonates with me uh, is the importance of relationships. And I, I once, I think I heard you say, part of my competitive advantage is that I'm a nice guy. 
Um, and if not, uh, I'm going to attribute it to you because uh, I think that it leads to a lot of, of good things. And I was hearing, I was listening to your podcast with Jonathan Boyer earlier today, and I thought that your insight on who uh, Buffett surrounded himself with is a very interesting insight that I, I think um, I think a lot of people would perceive Buffett to always be the one adding value, but maybe not necessarily getting the value back from being in a room together with uh, high quality people. And it's nice to hear you talk about the importance of relationships in your business. Well, in, in fact, there was a, a new word that I came across this past weekend. I try to be a lifelong learner. And I was reading an article, I think it was in the Sunday New York Times uh, about something. And, and what it described were circumstances such that you might have thought you had a relationship with somebody, but what you really had was a situationship. There were, there were circumstances that caused you to have some exchange with somebody, but it was only because of that particular situation. And as soon as that situation changed, it was not going to mean anything to either party anymore. And and I, I really stopped and paused and, and thought about that concept. Never heard that word before. But I but I think it's a powerful concept and a powerful notion. And and you should you should sort of step back and, and wonder so is this person I'm talking to right now or I'm with or I'm in the room, am, am I in a situation ship with them or am I in a relationship with them? And what do I want it to be? What would be better? What would be, you don't need to be in a relationship with everybody. You can't. Human beings are incapable of it. But my goodness, uh, I, I, the, the total tonnage of what other people know is not only an order of magnitude more than what I know, it's orders upon orders upon orders of magnitude. So to, to, to be humble, to be a listener, to sort of be open to what other people say and other people have to say and and to exercise both your mind and theirs by going through some stuff together and 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 moving from situationships to relationships i just find that that's a matter of compound return that's an exponential kind of function that takes place over time and and one of the fantastic things about buffett is he has been doing that for 90 years now I mean, I don't know how verbal he was at two, but I suspect it wasn't too long after that that he was talking and learning and interacting, and and he's he's kept at it for longer than anybody else you can see out there, and that creates a compound advantage, compound learning. Yeah, it uh, for some reason the concept of uh, this person Adam Robinson, uh, he says like he seeks to delight. Uh, people during their day. And I think that seeking to delight people is a good way to turn a situationship into a relationship, right? Uh, I agree I mean, with if, you completely. If you... for instance, yes, in, in, in Richmond, there's a gentleman I know who, uh, you know, would be in his 70s at this point, and he's been a, a, a real leader around this town for a, for a long time. And if you ask him sort of his, his daily plan or what he does, he says he gets up in the morning and he tries to figure out how he can help other people. That's it. That is the entirety of his strategy. And he has been doing so for 50 years. So he's a, he's a legend in this town and he deserves to be because he really has operated with that mindset for decades. And it, it just it just compounds. I suspect he's one of the happier people 
uh, around yes. that town. <laughs> I it, agree. It's amazing how, how rewarding it can be to be nice to people and to genuinely try to help people. And, and you know what else I will tell you about this guy? I like his kids too. There you go. And they're, I mean, they're, they're good, normal, productive, fun people are, are around Richmond. So that, that's a big tell too. Yeah. I like your kid, by the way. Well, at least your Thank son. You. I don't know if you have multiple kids, but I know your son. I, I do. Like I, I, I have three. So, uh, all right. Well, my apologies. I'm, I'm going to try to keep it on the down low with Jack that, that you singled him out as the favorite because that'll, that'll make the other two a little. <laughs> well, the other two uh, just haven't met me. <laughs> <laughs> the other two probably be like, I don't want to meet that guy. He's a weirdo. Uh, well, I'll you tell know you what? They've been to Berkshire as well and are, and okay. are at our at meeting. So they are, they are exposed to the world. All right. Uh, I hear you have a bit of a relationship with the Big Lebowski. What's all that about? <laughs> well, as an example of Susan's devotion and love for me, she at one point said to somebody when we were talking about that, um, it wasn't until the fifth time I watched it that I began to appreciate it. And that's that's Susan saying that. Uh, I've seen that movie more than five times, shall we say, many, many more. And it, it just amuses me. It, it, it's funny. Uh it gets quoted pretty pretty regularly, and it's 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 just a it's just a fun thing. There's a lot in that movie that I don't think you can understand until you know the fifth or sixth time. Uh, I don't know. I see different things depending on the mood I'm in. Yeah, a lot of strands in the old duder's head there, huh? That's right. That's right. Uh, <laughs> how is um? You know, I, I I have a series of questions that I have, so I apologize for hopping around uh, here. But how is how is traveling to India? Uh, given you a perspective on life, and what have you what have you learned as you've been doing that a little bit more? Well, it was a fascinating trip. I went with with Sarab, um, and I think we spent eight or ten days there. I can't remember. And my number one observation on coming back, which I think is a is a profound life lesson, is that the uh, composite layers of things that exist in India get you to a point where. Um, Truth is something that contains multiple aspects, and it contains some things within truth that, that are probably not true. There's no, there's no simple, undiluted, 100% thing that is, is true. And similarly, things that you, know, you would say are, are not true or false, there are probably elements of truth within those as well. So to, to look at things and understand the nuance, the complexity, the multi-layered nature of what life is really like, uh, for, forget black and white. And in fact, one quote that I'll, I'll attribute to Sarab, and I, and I think of him every time I, I think of this, and I, and I use it quite frequently, is he says, people have forgotten that there are numbers that exist between zero and 100. And we just live in this world where people seem to, to go immediately to either zero or 100, depending on what you're talking about, and depending on their point of view relative to what underlying facts you, you're looking at. Well, it would be my sense that zero and 100 don't happen very often in life. There's things that tend towards zero and things that tend towards 100, but they never reach those exact poles and they move and they change over time and circumstances. And I think uh, spending that time in India and just having a different way of interpreting that infused my thinking in a, in a way that's helpful. Hmm. What was it? What was it about India that like put that seed in your head? The immensity of it, and the the size and scale and variety of what you would see in any given day uh, was just unlike anything I'd ever 
I'd ever seen before. Hmm. I, I, w- I need to go. I The closest thing I've been is this book called Shantaram. It is the single best reading experience I've ever had in my life. And uh, I, you know, to the extent that that even touches a, a little bit of reality, uh, it it's it's really something. Well, I would encourage you to go and I would uh, suggest, and in fact, funny you should mention Shantaram, um, that book is on my shelf, but I've not read it yet. And one of the ways in which I triage books, because I'm a pretty avid reader and I buy a lot of books myself, but also people know that I'm an avid reader, so they give me books. And I can't remember how Shantaram came into my possession, but it did. And if three people from entirely different realms of my life recommend the same thing, that goes to the top of the list. So congratulations, Bill. You are now number three of <laughs> suggesting Chantaram to me. So I'm going to go back to my office and grab it off the shelf and put that in the queue as the very next book that I'm reading. Well, I, I hope you enjoy. It is a commitment. Uh, that and East of Eden are my two favorites. Uh, it is it is a heck of a it's a heck of a story. I don't know how else to say it. Um, now, let me ask you a question, if I may, based on that topic, given the commitment yeah. of reading that. Have you ever read The Way We Live Now by Anthony Trollope? I have not. Well, A, you can tease Sara about that because I, I begged him to read it and he hasn't been able to bring himself to do so. It's 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 a 900-pager uh, homework assignment, and it was written in the 1870s by Anthony Trollope in reaction to his disgust at behaviors in financial markets, which spilled out over into social interactions. And it was sort of in the wake of the speculations and speculators who financed the growth of the railroad business. And if, oh. if you think about today and what happens in the world of technology or whatever kind of stories that are out there, um, and you know the most recent headline on FTX and all of the things that are in, involved there, and you read the names that occur in that book, and you substitute the names of people that you read about in the papers over the last month or so, you'll think you're reading about today. And the point Hmm. is, the timelessness of these kinds of market cycles and these kinds of behaviors and the fundamental unchanging aspect of human nature, that no matter how well-educated we think we are, how much we think we've accomplished, we are epically subject to episodes of of greed or fear and social climbing and fear of missing out and behaviors that we sort of in our hearts of hearts know that we shouldn't do, but we engage in any way. So the names and the places and the underlying story uh, or or, uh, technology or media involve changes, but human nature does not. And I I recommend that book highly as as a way of uh, reminding yourself of that fundamental truth of human nature. It's been a really interesting uh, few years to go through investments. Uh, you know, I twenty twenty the it wasn't like FOMO that I felt, but man, the, the greed that I felt, and I, I even journaled about it a little bit. And like, I don't know that was that was wild. And then, um, I, you know, the the subsequent uh, crash in some things, which, you know, I, I largely avoided the the really bad stuff. But I mean, I, I took a pain, right? And then like the doubt, it's, it's uh, you know, I, I guess uh, you can read things, but touching touching the hot stoves is uh, maybe the kind of, I'm unfortunately the kind of guy that needs to touch a stove once in a while in order to learn. 
And I, I think it goes to your mentors saying, you know, you got to survive the first 30 years of investing to uh, become any good at it, right? Indeed so. And the other great author I would recommend for reading that reminds you of the fundamental unchanging aspect of human nature is Mark Twain. And to your point about, you know, you can read about it, but you really have to live through it. One of his statements was that a man who picks up a cat by the tail will learn things about a cat that you can learn in no other way. <laughs> I'm going to try to avoid that one. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I need to learn what he's saying. <laughs> no, but I think you get the picture. Yes. Yes, I can. Indeed. Um, what what was it like for you in in March of 2020? And and I think that one of the uh, you know one of the things that that surprised me and I think some other people was you know you had a long term relationship with Carmax and that sale. You know, I'm I'm just curious. Uh, what did what was that like emotionally to sell that company? Because you've been public about it, you talked about it. You're in the same town. Uh, you know, I'm just curious on a personal level what that was like and and or was it just matter of fact I, it doesn't matter what personal i feel it's what i got to do now this is kind of like you know the sports reporter uh at the at the sideline of the game and you know, we'll, we'll we'll have two of those this this weekend at the super bowl and one person will be talking to the quarterback of the winning team and probably another reporter on the other side is talking to the quarterback of the losing team so March 2020, as I was coming off the field, I'd be the quarterback on the losing side of the of the field there. And if you ask the famous sports reporter question of, you know, what did it feel like? Well, the answer is it sucked. It was a it was a challenging time. It was not not fun at all. And it was a combination of factors that um, in the very early days of the pandemic, when who when people did not know what the ultimate outcomes would be. In, in any dimension whatsoever. Uh, we reported that first quarter where we, we scrubbed every policy we had. We made judgments about what we thought the losses would be. And we're a financially conservative bunch. I think we were very clear-eyed. And in fact, if you look at the industry-wide losses that were reported in the first quarter, Markel's looked a bit more severe than what some others would have. But in the fullness of time and subsequent quarters when everybody kind of had to keep looking at those books and seeing what the losses actually were, um, our, our losses were probably much more in line with what the industry experience were than what it looked like on day one. But at day one, we're, we're making as conservative as a, a estimate as we can, a fulsome estimate, a, a full review, um, and, and just trying to be clear-eyed about everything, uh, and keeping that in context with the, the capital levels that we do need to have to make regulators and rating agencies um, happy and, and, and satisfied with what's going on. And just as we looked at every single insurance policy we had, we also looked at every single investment security that we had, both bonds and and uh, equity securities. And I'll, I'll frankly admit that in the case of CarMax, I was wrong. Uh, it was my sensation that, look, I, th I thought it was better for us to bring the, bring the lines of battle back a little bit, uh, make the capital position as uh, impregnable and as, as solid as possible because you just didn't know what was going to come next. And I wanted to be in a position that no matter what came next, we were we were going to be ready, willing, and able to answer the bell for the next round of the fight. So the CarMax and Marriott were the two uh, things that we sold that were personally and emotionally the most painful 
conformity, but that was what needed to be done under the um, complications and circumstances of uncertainty that we faced at the time. Now, here's a case where uh, being part of the insurance company might have been a little bit different than what it would be if I was a standalone money manager managing a, a fund or a partnership uh, because of the regulatory capital circumstances and the fact that that quarter, you know, we reported a combined ratio of 118, which is the worst quarter we've ever reported. And that includes uh, the Hurricanes Katrina Rita Wilma uh, episode. It includes the 9-11 time. I mean, you, you look at the stress tests of what happened to Markel under conditions of, of uh, pretty severe stress out there in the marketplace, the first quarter of the pandemic was the worst one we ever went through. So it was not a standalone decision. It was a decision in the context of every other moving piece that, that existed around here. Wasn't fun. And uh, Bill Nash, who was the CEO of CarMax, I, I called him and I, when we did it, and I said, Bill, I just want you to know that was our circumstances that caused me to sell the stock, not yours. I think you got a great business and you you do a fine job running it. So we, we continue to have pleasant, cordial relationships ar around Richmond. And, uh, and in fact, um, you know, we, we are not unaware of, of CarMax's skills and abilities. Yeah, we well, I, that, that's what I was. I was actually curious about that. Uh, I, I don't know, you know, how insurance capital is reserved, but I assume it's somewhat similar to a bank. And when you get those downgrade cycles in banks... Uh, you have to, you know, your capital at risk increases as your downgrades happen. And um, I, I suspected you needed to reserve more capital for potential losses. And you kind of get in a situation where equities are moving around so much. It can, you know, I, I think I, I think the most direct thing that I can say is sometimes when people are, are analyzing you specifically from the outside or even Buffett, right? Uh, you have different incentives uh, than than you might if you were running a fund. And I was curious, I mean, you answered that question, but I've always kind of wondered that question. Right. That's directionally correct. And, and like we, we said earlier, there's pluses and minuses to every bit of uh, whatever structure you find yourself in. Uh, so yes, I do need to make decisions within the context of making sure that regulators and rating agencies stay happy. And, and there are qualitative aspects of that, not strictly just the quantitative side. All right, I got two more for you, and then I'm going to let you go if that's okay. All right. Uh, how has the transition uh, to sole CEO gone? And, you know, Richie, uh, at least from my seat, seemed to have the insurance, uh, I don't want to say expertise, but that's the word I'm thinking of. You know, how have you uh, managed that transition, and, and what's it like to be CEO of both hats now? Well, the good news is that's been a long-standing sort of slow-rolling process over the last couple of years, so it was not—it's not something that takes you by surprise. So you get to prepare and understand and and be a little bit uh, ready for that actual uh, flip of the switch when it comes. Second thing that's probably relatively important to realize is uh, Richie's office was—I don't know—fifteen yards away from my office. And he and I started at roughly the same time. So in terms of personal relationship, Rich and I have worked largely side by side for 30 some years. And both of our offices are, are situated within the, the offices and operations of our insurance operations and have from day one. So basically every conversation, every person I've eaten lunch with, every person I've had a cup of coffee with, every person I've gone to a management meeting with for decades 
has has been from the insurance side. So it, it's it's not a new beat for me. It's it's not something that I was unfamiliar with. I, I know what the words mean, and I, I know a little bit how it works. And uh, Richie would say this. I will say this. Everybody at Markel would say this. None of what any of us does is done by ourselves. This is a team-oriented place. Um, I can't remember the author who said it. It might have been John Irving, but he said, you cannot experience a kiss by yourself. That, that Got to be another person me. involved for a kiss to mean <laughs> yeah. anything. So that's the that's the nature of the way things have been run at Markel for forever, uh, and that predated uh, Richie and me. It's it starts from the very beginning of the, of the company. So there's always been a team. There's always been multiple people. Uh, Jeremy Noble is the person on point in our insurance operations these days as president of the Markel Insurance, and he he really has. Richie's day-to-day responsibility of running the insurance engine. Uh, but again, this morning, probably an hour and a half that Jeremy and I sat and drank a cup of coffee and, and talked about things. Uh, and he is my partner in the same way that that Richie was. And same with Mike Heaton and Andrew Crowley, who oversee the adventure, the uh, day-to-day activities of Markel Ventures and the, the holding company. Our offices are all adjoining. And Terry Gendron, who we just announced our, our new CFO will be uh, starting here in the, in the middle of March, and she'll she'll be with us as well. And and we talk to one another all day, every day. All right. Uh, so to those that have that question, there you go. Um, I got. I have perhaps the most important question of the entire interview. Uh, how do you deserve a good spouse, and how do you make yourself a spouse worth uh, loving that from a spouse that? Uh, is deserving, right? I mean, I think your wife, uh, there, there is not anyone that says anything bad about her. Uh, and, you know, I think uh, to the younger guys out there, you know, what would you recommend? Well, it's a spectacular question and it's a spectacular thought exercise. The single best decision I have ever made in my life was uh, pursuing Susan and uh, being successful and asking her to marry me. And by the way, uh, we started dating when we were 15, and we were married by the time I was 19. So wow. I, was, I was early on. Um, good for you. You didn't been... give her any choices. You locked it yeah. down when you knew you had something well, good. I, and that's part of the answer of, of what you just said. So there's this tremendous temptation to always think of things in terms of opportunity cost and optimization. So you, you meet a girl. You, you like her. She likes you. But you can't help yourself from thinking, well, what, what about another girl? Is, is there a better one out there? The answer to that factually is probably yes. But to, to, to find someone who you can get along with and gets along with you and the Venn diagram of your values uh, overlaps enough and you make a commitment to one another that you recognize it's, it's not optimal, but this isn't an optimization exercise. It's a satisfaction exercise. And, and you make that commitment and, and you stick with it. And lots of times there's a lot of good days. Lots of times there are challenges and rainy days within it. But in and of itself, the, the challenges are what changes things from it being a situationship to a relationship. And there's just no greater advantage that I've had over the years than, than Susan's steadfast, utter, unrelenting, unconditional love and support both emotional and financial. You know, she was gainfully employed, ran one of our businesses 
for the last 15 years. So she just, she's just steady. Um, and that, that makes my life a lot easier. That's, uh, that's, I, I think that's the most important one. Uh, I know I wouldn't be anywhere without my wife and, uh, I don't know why she married me, but I'm glad she did try to keep her every day, you know? So we'll see. All right. Well, Tom, I, you know, I appreciate it. You're somebody that I've learned just a ton from. I've looked up to you for a long time and, uh, to be able to interview you is, uh, you know, a bit of a dream come true. So thank you for coming on. Thank you. I appreciate the uh, interest and I hope I'll see you in, uh, Omaha and Richmond soon. I'll be there, man. I'm moderating a panel for Bob and, uh, I, I've already uh, figured out what emails I'm going to send out to the the participants to request some. Uh, I got to do some research on their ideas. I'm I'm excited. I think this is going to be a good one this year. I think I think Perfect. the last two years have been great, but I I really I'm excited to see what you guys are building. And for those that don't know, come out. Tom's got beer. He's got food trucks. We got music most of the time. It's a great time. That's right. All right. Well, take care of yourself, Tom, and uh, see you soon. Thanks, Bill. All Appreciate right. it. Bye bye.